Hey, everyone, remember to subscribe to this podcast so you get an update as soon as the next episode is ready. And if you love what you hear, consider joining Stitcher Premium today. Stitcher Premium subscribers can hear the entire series. That's all seven episodes of Dear Franklin Jones right now. Yep, they're all up there. To sign up, go to DearFranklinJones.com and use the promo code JONES for one month free. Dear Diary, Dear Avatar of the World, This is one of the last letters I wrote to Franklin Jones. I'm enrolled in community college, and the last pages of this notebook are full of entries about making friends, how hard it is for me to meet and talk to girls. There are still echoes of Jones's teaching in there. Yet when it comes to myself, I am the hangman paradigm, and this torments me. I think I was talking about, like, the hang... like the hanged man in the tarot. They're not really about Jones anymore. They're just about being an angsty teenager. Yet I still end them the way I've been taught to. Okay, I bow down at your gracious feet in eternal gratitude for your human manifestation here so that all beings may be liberated from the suffering of attention simply by surrendering to your form. Franklin Jones is hard to shake. Give me your attention at any moment and you will receive this grace. In my mind, I'm saying you can't pass yet. It's too soon. People really are not understanding who I am. They're not understanding what I'm teaching, and they're not able to communicate it. Now, some do, did, and have more depthfully than others, clearly. But as a totality, I think we fa- we have failed. But I'm not a me, is it? I literally am you. I'm Jonathan Hirsch. This is Dear Franklin Jones. I don't know much about what went on in the group after we left. My parents lost most of their acupuncture clients. So many were followers of Jones. I was in my first semester of college, trying to focus on this new life without Jones or his group. Only recently did I piece together what happened after we left. While working on the story, I get a cryptic email from the guy who created a message board called the Daism Files, after Adi Da, one of the names Franklin Jones gave himself. He sends me a zip file with an archive of all the old posts and an email. The name of sender was listed as I Anonymous. A friend told me you were writing an article on Jones. This material will be very helpful to you. Please copy all of the posts and save them for historical purposes, as the Dropbox will need to be shut down. I'm getting older and haven't been inclined to stay involved with this controversy after all these years. Good luck. This is my last login to this address. I don't know who this I Anonymous is, but I'm pretty sure this dude found out about my reporting from one of the defectors from the 1980s. In some ways, Jones's group was like a small town, Everyone knows everyone, or at least knows of them, and gossips. I start reading. One thread, called the Daist Cover-Up Project, claims that a coordinated cover-up had been planned to protect Jones against scrutiny during those wild party years. It names names of all the people I knew growing up. 
Thread outlines how Jones hired members of the group to help erase evidence of damaging stories, like the stories of naked parties and drug use. Allegedly, according to Speaker 2, who wrote the thread, there were all these secret rooms in the sanctuary where this team of followers transcribed Jones's talks and meetings with defectors and then redacted them with black markers. Everyone involved, the posting says, was sworn to secrecy, and any material that could compromise Jones was destroyed. Maybe. I mean, I didn't find any proof of that. But there are a lot of people I didn't talk to. But whether or not any of this or other allegations against Jones are true, Franklin Jones was complicated. And he had a lot of sway over people. Over us. On the message board, Jones's followers are called slaves. I hope he knows that there is always a chance that one of his slaves will wake up, like the dissidents did, and hold him accountable for his manipulation and abuse of others. As I pointed out before, Jones was largely removed from everyone but his closest inner circle of followers. So people's imaginations about Jones's private life ran wild. And the Daism files was this place online where people speculated about who he really was. Some told stories of a guy named Franklin who became completely incomprehensible and self-obsessed. And some professed to have witnessed in Jones a spiritual teacher of the highest order who revealed himself as a unique symbol of divinity. There's no end to the wonder and magnificence of the divine. I bow down to Da as I bow down to the birds circling out the window above the trees. Sometimes they make him sound like Jesus. Other times, not so much. Daism is like a new age pinata, all dolled up with grandiose symbols and ritual baubles. And you break it open, and a half-eaten jelly donut and three mouse turds fall out. I've read these exchanges for so long that all the points of view start to cancel one another out. I had hoped reading these accounts and arguments for and against Jones would help me understand what happened to Jones's group after we left. But they really didn't. They only confused me more. But there's one part of the site that stuck with me, a series of so-called reports. They sound a bit more like a gossip column than a report. They call Jones Frank and refer to him mockingly as cranky and ranting. One documented the months around the time my parents were pushed out of the group. According to the report, in April of 2000, Jones had left Northern California with his inner circle of followers. The group had arranged a sort of vacation home for him on Lopez Island in Puget Sound. While there, Jones experienced what the author described as a paralyzing panic attack. Jones later referred to the event as a divine translation, a process whereby Jones had become even more godlike. The report also says that doctors diagnosed Jones with arterial sclerosis, hardening of the arteries that can lead to more heart problems. At the same time, Jones is becoming more and more frustrated with what he saw as the failures of his group. Book sales are low. His followers aren't getting closer to enlightenment. Something, of course, that only Jones would be able to determine. The document cites comments Jones allegedly delivered to his followers. I feel isolated. I have nothing of a life that has profundity. My devotees are supposed to be cultivating the relationship and conveying gifts to me. As the year progressed, according to this document, Jones continued to excoriate his followers for failing him and accused them of making him into a cult leader. Another year has passed, and still we have not accomplished anything. I am almost 61 years of age, and I have seen that my life work has failed. I have been rejected. 
You have wasted my life, my actual human life. You have made me into a cult figure. I've seen pictures of Jones from this time. He looks fragile and weak, mostly bald, with a little gray hair long in the back, deep wrinkles underneath his eyes, face speckled with liver spots. Members of the group describe this as Jones being in a rarefied state. The report describes various instances where Jones had meltdowns, mostly directed at his followers. In one, he's sitting in his car, refusing to come out. Another, he's sitting in a hotel room, wounded by the fact that his followers haven't met his expectations, even suggesting that more physical harm could come to his body if his followers didn't step up to the challenge. What that would mean was unclear. Seems to me that, despite how devastated my parents and I were when we left, we didn't miss a particularly happy time. While Jones and his group struggled to hang on to this world they'd built, I began a new and unfamiliar life out in the real world, away from the group. My first semester in college, I took one class in creative writing, got a job at a bookstore, and I continued to write constantly, a mix of things, much of it pretty unintelligible. This is a fragment of a poem I found from that time, which talks specifically about Jones. I could have waited lifetimes for that savior to descend in his orange garb, I wrote. I'm trapped inside this crazy world. Seems to be no way out. I also met my first girlfriend who didn't know about Jones, and in her, I saw a chance to truly make a clean break. She knew about the group, but it was just this funny thing my parents raised me in. Thomas and Kathleen were in the midst of their own reinvention. As I said before, once his followers learned what had happened, my parents' acupuncture business declined. I was kind of abandoned, you know, and then people started going to other, you know, people, and when my client base suffered. <laughs> you mean what, you guys weren't involved? I didn't like, no, of course and, I didn't And like people it. stopped coming to you? You mm-hmm. guys? People stopped coming for treatments after that? Uh, not as much. I wish I could say I helped them cope during that time or even witness their struggle. But the truth is, I didn't. I wasn't really around. All I know is that they fought a lot. And eventually, they divorced. When you're sad, you don't have the fight in you to say, I don't want this to happen. Wait a second, maybe I can change this. Or, you know? I didn't really have the fight left in me. There was so much happening that I guess it was one of those times of life where you just go... Time's up. It's done. My dad and his new partner moved down the street from my mom. Now, more than a decade later, they're all friends. We even spend holidays together. But back then, I was engrossed in my own life, trying to figure out how to be part of the larger world. I remember buying a basketball and going to the local courts to shoot free throws for the first time in years. And that simple act, it was like a meditation, Just me and the stripe, 15 feet from the hoop, one shot, and then the next. On my 18th birthday, I move into an apartment with my first girlfriend. It's a single room on the main commercial street in downtown San Rafael, above a coffee roastery. During the days, I work at the bookstore, go to school. At night, at home, I sit on the bed and play guitar, smoke cigarettes on the fire escape, write songs and poems. It's sort of like those years as a disciple, without the pressure of following Jones or the isolation. Though I still think about Jones, 
a lot. These aren't exactly happy years, but they're consistent. That's really all I want. About a year later, my girlfriend and I get married in a civil ceremony. We have a picnic with a few family and friends. Getting married, I had hoped, would make me see things more clearly. That once I had a wife, a normal job, new friends, that I could start fresh. Can't imagine this will surprise you, but it soon became clear that things aren't that easy. For this and other reasons, my first girlfriend, my first wife, though it never really felt like a marriage, she and I split up. At this point, I'm 22. I moved back to San Francisco, to the place where I had felt happiest as a kid, before my parents became so close to Franklin Jones. I ran a studio near downtown, work days, go out at night to clubs, slowly make my way through college, and I keep writing, mostly poems and songs that, looking back, they're still about Jones, like this one. I have heard of a master on whose words a hundred hung, like fleas cleaving to the skin of his wisdom. The truth is, he said, then pausing, slumped into sleep on his chair, drunk. I do not live on the mountain. Yeah, what can I say? You don't follow a guru for 16 years and then just one day make a clean break and rejoin society. It was a process, a really disorienting one. I also started a band with my friend China. We wrote songs, sang them, which, looking back, they, like the poems, are about Jones. And so I ask you now, would you wear my name inside your mouth, inside your brain, and together we can ride this one out, and on Anyway, the point is, this new life was filled with creative pursuits, new friends, making art with other people, soaking up the energy and activity of city life. This new life was mine. And yet, Jones was still there. It was like if I really wanted to be normal, I was going to have to train for it. Kind of like how I trained to follow Jones. And then, Thanksgiving Day, 2008, Franklin Jones dies. I don't hear the news until a few days later, and when I do, I feel this aggressive numbness, if that makes any sense. Like there were so many feelings swirling around that it was impossible to know which one to latch onto. Jones spent his final days on that Fijian island he bought with the money his followers gave him. I spoke to Jones's wife, Nadi Kanta, about the last days of his life. She says that he had become something of an artist in the years since my family left. He remained quite frail physically after 2000, but he had an enormous amount of work he was trying to accomplish um, in terms of his written teaching and his artistic work, in terms of the world and the creation of cooperation, tolerance, and peace on the earth. The group built him a studio on the island where Jones worked for hours each day, developing photos and creating collages. Sounds like typical retired dude stuff, right? 
he wasn't just making pictures. So Jones and his followers believed his art was literally changing the course of events in the world. He was doing the world, Pooja, from there. She has been with Jones since the 1970s, spent almost her entire adult life in the group. And she really, truly believes in Jones's supernatural powers. During those final days, she says she had the impression that he was getting weak. After one day of working on photos, she had helped him walk back from the dark room to his private residence. It's like I could almost look through him. He looked so translucent. He ate lunch quickly and returned to the dark room, asked her to put on Michael Jackson's album Dangerous. When he died, she says his soul left his body just like that, that his death had come at the exact perfect moment, and that now he's become omnipresent again. Gone back to being God. The official cause of Jones's death was a massive heart attack. My dad's friend James Steinberg was also on the island at the time. He said Jones was still hung up on the idea that his congregation was not getting bigger the way he'd hoped. I only came here for the sake of, of you, and you can only keep me here if you really give me work to do by being available to my teaching, by bringing more people to me. When James found out that Jones was dead, his first thought was, In my mind, I'm saying you can't pass yet. It's too soon. The group had not grown significantly in the past three decades, and it never really recovered from the scandals in the 80s. And according to Nadi Kanta, they blamed themselves. So you place the error, as you say, on, on the community's ability to communicate Absolutely. that Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we've been... Um... And Beloved himself would talk about that from the beginning. I mean, from the first day it came to him, he was saying, people really are not understanding who I am. They're not understanding what I'm teaching, and they're not able to communicate it. Now, some do, did, and have more depthfully than others, clearly. But as a totality, I think we, fa- we have failed. For Nadi Kanta and the group, it was simple. Franklin Jones could do no wrong. All his failures, they were supposedly on us, his followers. But for me, the answer is not that simple at all. More on that next time. Dear Franklin Jones is reported and produced by me, Jonathan Hirsch, along with Ashley Cleek and Annie Aviles. Our associate producer is Nora Lind. Our senior producer is John Asante. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radelet. Special editorial guidance from Peter Clowney. Thanks to the great sound engineers Casey Holford and Eric Jorgensen. Original music by Ray Lynch. Dear Franklin Jones is a production of Stitcher.
Hey everyone, hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Dear Franklin Jones. Don't forget, all seven episodes are available now, only on Stitcher Premium. To sign up, go to dearfranklinjones.com and use the promo code JONES for one month free. Stitcher. You can think of household name episodes as lifelines when you're stuck in a boring conversation. Need to change the subject? Tell them the secrets behind Victoria's Secret. Or how a single lie turned KFC into a Japanese Christmas tradition. It was a lie. But no. uh, <laughs> I still regret that. Did you know Panera opened cafes where customers could pay whatever they wanted? That before it was a hippie car, the VW Beetle was created by Nazis. Hitler built a city for the Beetle? <laughs> like the hippie Beetle? You can talk about how LaCroix, Crocs, Carhartt, and Canada Goose all became surprisingly cool. And wow your friends with stories of TGI Friday's wild early days as one of the first singles bars. I'd be standing at the bar on Fridays and say, hi, darling, I own this place. That seemed to work. I'm Dan Bobkoff, and I host Household Name from Business Insider and Stitcher. We make this show so you have something to talk about. Subscribe to Household Name for surprising stories about famous brands. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Household Name, brands you know, stories you don't.